In this episode, we are going to do a virtual birding trip on the west coast of Namibia. We'll hear all about the birds, the places, the routes, and everything you need to know to plan a birding trip to this special country. Spring is in the air, and one of the ways that you can attract more birds to your garden is with the great products that Westermans offer. Everything from feeders to seed and lots more. Available at various pet and lifestyle retailers across South Africa, online and in-store. Westermans, for the love of birds. As always, one of the easiest ways that you can help us to spread the news about the show is to tell others about the podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast, please tell someone else about it. Oh, and while you're at it, send us a direct message on any of our social media platforms or send us an email on info at thebirdinglife.com and tell us where you listen to the show from. We would love to get to know you better. If you are looking to visit Namibia, be sure to check out the Birding Life's accommodation and guide directory. There are a wide range of options throughout the country, including the stunning Sanfontaine Lodge and Nature Reserve, a 200,000 hectare private nature reserve. It's a soul-stirring place where guests have all they need to relax and reconnect with nature. Check out the link in the show notes or visit our website, www.thebirdinglife.com. This week, I'm happy to be chatting to Leon Murray from Lawson's Birding, Wildlife and Custom Safaris again. He'll be taking us on a virtual birding tour of magical Namibia. Lawson's Birding, Wildlife and Custom Safaris offer first-class birding and wildlife trips to a wide range of countries in southern and eastern Africa. Contact them today to set up the safari of a lifetime. Check them out on our accommodation directory. The link is in the notes to the show. So Southern Africa is blessed with some fantastic birding destinations. We've got obviously got South Africa, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, and Botswana. I mean, all these places are fantastic places to go and bird. So Leon, just as a starting point, what is the attraction? What makes Namibia so attractive for birders? Oh, thanks, Adam. Um yeah, well, first of all, I mean, birding aside, before we even get into the birds, it's just such a beautiful destination. I mean, the scenery is just is just stunning in, in a lot of areas. Talking about the birds, it's got a lot of special birds. Uh, being a dry area, you know, a lot of dry areas hold hold special in birds. When I say when I say special, I mean endemics and near endemics. Um, so Namibia's got a lot of near endemics that you can only see there or in Angola. Um, so that makes it special from a birding point of view. Um, in addition to those specials, got a lot of your sort of charismatic savanna birds that a lot of people think about when they think of Africa. Um, throw in the great game viewing, you know, good, inf- generally good infrastructure, um, nice accommodation, etc. And you really got a, a fantastic birding and wildlife destination. Yeah, when I was looking and preparing for the this podcast, I saw that Namibia has around 676 species. That's an impressive list immediately. And many of those are endemic. Uh, well, there's quite a, a decent amount of endemic species. So there's about there's 15 endemic or near endemic species. What would be some of the main targets that birders would be after when they visit Namibia? Uh, yeah, well, in terms of actual endemics, they only have one true endemic, um, and that's the dune lock. Um, which you find in, in the dunes of, of the Namib Desert. But then those near endemics, you're talking about things like Rupal's Koran. Herrera Chat is a big one for Namibia, one of the specials. Whitetail Shrike, um, your Damara Rock Runner, a great little bird. Um, Hartlip Spurfowl, found in the rocky environments. 
Tiro's Hornbill, Gray's Lark, an arm of desert special. Um, the Benguela long billed lark. And then on the coast, a lot of, uh, for the wader watchers, you've got plenty to keep you occupied there. Um, things like, oh, and, and then moving back inland, auger buzzard, quite a few, to men, too many to mention, really. And, you know, I've, I've looked at quite a few fo- bird photographers that have been up into, Nam- into Namibia, and I've seen the photography they've taken. It seems like a great destination for bird photographers also. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's nice, generally open territory, uh, I don't, you know, Taking photographs in open environments is a hang of a lot easier than trying to do it in a thicket or a forest. So Namibia is very open, wide open spaces. A lot of the birds are quite confiding. They'll perch out on, on nice perches, etc. So bird photography, uh, great potential. And then, of course, the landscape and scenery is a whole other genre that Namibia really stands out in. You know, those desert desert scenes are just your, – your camera won't stop working when you're there, I promise – yeah, one thing I was just was thinking about, I've never been to Namibia. It's one of my dream destinations, but it looks like the climate is quite different from when where I'm. Obviously, I'm on the east coast of South Africa. For birders that are looking to go to Namibia, what are some essential items they should pack? Well, depending on what season you're going, you know, they, the seasons can be quite different. Um, in the winter, it can get pretty, you know, being a desert environment, it can get very cold uh, inland. Over, overnight and early morning, so you have to be prepared with, um, you know, suitable warm clothing, clothing, a nice uh, padded jacket, etc. Um, but then even in winter, that sun's going to come up and, and burn off that cold. So hats, sunscreen, uh, I generally wear long sleeve shirts to keep the sun off. Um, you're going into summer again, then it's going to get very hot. So you need to have clothes that are suitable in the heat that are not going to make you hotter than you need to be. Um, yeah, then the dark dark glasses are, of course, a must. It's a very bright environment. Place like Itosha, that reflection off the salt pan. You really want to shade your eyes properly. Um, and then just always have adequate water with you, especially when you're in, in the Namib Desert. So make sure you, you're well, well supplied on the water side. So we're going to do a little bit of a whirlwind trip, a uh, birding trip around some great birding spots in Namibia and hear about some of the special birds that are found in this area. So we're going to start in the capital city of Namibia, Vintuk, and just doing research around the area, there's about 300 possible species and many of the endemic and near-endemic species are actually found in Namibia or in Vintuk. So it's a great place to start your trip. Yeah, indeed. You know, the airport's quite a way out of town, so and flights arriving quite late generally. Uh, so it makes a Vintuk's a great first stop. Um, just get your feet, uh, get settled there. And if you've got time, you can head over to uh, the easiest place is Avis Dam, just on the edge of town, on the airport side as well, so it's very easy. Um, I've never been there when there's been water in the dam, uh, and, and I believe it does have water at the moment after this good rainy season we've had. So that's going to be exciting to throw in a few, you know, the water birds and ducks and things. Um, but at that dry savanna around around the dam there is good for, uh, you can maybe even get a head start on the endemics with things like rock runner um, and, and Montero's hornbill. Otherwise, good uh, general arid, arid savanna birds, your crimson-breasted trikes, your violet-eared waxbills, um, cap pendulant tit, ashy tit, um, the black-faced waxbill, shaft-held wider, etc. And a, a similar suite of birds, out at uh, Danful Yun uh, Game Park or Nature Reserve on the other side of town. It's a bit of a bigger, bigger park. You know, Avis Dam is, is worth a couple of hours just walking around. But Danful Yun, you know, in the vehicle, you can spend half a day there quite easily. 
And uh, yeah, beautiful, that dry savanna environment throws up uh, a lot of nice birds. Also Montero's hornbill out there, possibly even white-tailed shrike. So you get, get that head start on those endemics on your list, which is always nice. And then Donfeljuns also looks like a fantastic place for um, getting a few of Namibia's mammal species. Yeah, they've got uh, quite a range of antelope, etc. out there. So uh, it always makes a, a good start if, if you have enough time, definitely. Yeah, and for those who have never visited Vintuk, you know, what is the city like? Because, you know, a lot of people, maybe from overseas especially, would have this idea of what an African city is like. What is Vintuk like? You know, you've spoken earlier about the fact that Namibia has got great infrastructure. So tell us about the city itself, because if this is a starting base, you know, it might be a place that some people would use to stock up and get a couple of, get some supplies before they head out into um, some of the other destinations we're going to speak about. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a it's a modern city. Actually, it's nice. It's not it's not too big. You know, in in South Africa, we got a lot bigger cities like Durban and Johannesburg. Windhoek's much smaller. Um, the roads are all good. The traffic lights all work wonderfully. Um, so it's very easy to get around. Um, it's quite yeah. If you want to do a bit of sightseeing, there's a lot of cultural attractions. Um, there's a few other uh, parks and things for a bit of bird watching, and I think like a botanical garden uh, area. Um, but very easy for shopping. You, there's uh, c- uh, big shopping centers on the outskirts um, with ample parking, etc. So you can get everything you need there. Very modern shopping centers. So it's it's not uh, typically African as as most people would think of it. It's it's a wonderful little city. So the next place we're going to chat about is an area. And I, just for those that are listening, excuse my pronunciation, accent Engelsman, which means some of the pronunciation might not be great, but I'm going to do my best to say these as well as I can. So the next place we're going to chat about is a place called Spreet Hoogde Pass, which uh, just looking at the pictures and looking at you know this the, this place, I mean, not only it's a great place for birding, but the, the views from the pass are absolutely spectacular. Yeah, now Spritzwachte Pass is, is is a stunning destination. It's basically on the route from Vintuk down towards um, Solitaire and, and Sorcesflay. That's normally our, our first day. And there's various routes you can use to get down to Sorcesflay. But I like to do the one that takes you over the Spritzwachte Pass. So you'll basically leave Vintuk and then drive for a couple of hours through that sort of hilly, dry, dry savanna country. And then quite uh, unexpectedly, you come to the edge of the um, sort of plateau where it, it gives way to the Namib Desert. So you stop at the top of this pass and you have views out over the Namib Desert below you, which is just magic. And then from a birding perspective, it's it's a, not a, a definite place, but a fairly good place for Herero chat. It's a tricky bird to find. So if you can get it uh, on the first day, it takes a lot of pressure off uh, further on in your itinerary. Um, so, yeah, good for a rare chat. Um, a few other species, uh, Montero's hornbill, um, the pygmy falcons. You know, if you look around the sociable weaver nests in the trees along the road, you might get the pygmy falcon, uh, mountain wheat here, Vero's eagle, auger buzzard, etc. So that's basically our generally our first sort of proper birding stop uh, on the way down to Sorcesflays on the Spritzhoogte Pass. And in terms of the birding between Vintuk and the pass, is that quite a is the birding along the road quite good also? Yeah, definitely. You're traveling through basically, I guess it's farmland, but very underdeveloped or undeveloped. So there's not many buildings or houses. So it's it's wide open country. Um, the roads are quiet generally, so you can stop uh, when you see something. Stop and get out. Obviously, always uh, when roadside birding, you pull well off the road. 
and just be aware of other cars. But generally, yeah, a lot of potential for birding on the way. The thing is with the, with Namibia, because of the heat, especially if you're anywhere near summer, bird activity starts to tail off quickly from about 10 o'clock. So if, you, if you're making your way to Spreetsuchter, specifically with the aim of seeing the Rero chat, you want to try to get there as early as possible. So you try not to dilly-dally too much looking at the more common stuff on the way. Rather get there and try bag the Rero chat before the heat kicks in and everything disappears. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice because, you know, a lot of times I know we get, especially if you don't have the local knowledge, you kind of get to the place where, you know, you want to try and get every single species along the way. And sometimes the birds that you'd get along that road are, you're going to get it another place anyway. So you're almost going to waste the time, you know, trying to get all those birds. And like you said, the more common species and you know, rather like you were saying, head to the pass and use that as your, you know, your primary destination for birding for the day. Yeah, definitely. If you, I mean, there's, there's many ways to bird. If you're trying to get the specials and, and build your list, then you, you have to prioritize. A little bit of strategic thinking will, will help you in the long run, definitely. So the next place we're going to speak about, it's a place, and I'm being honest with you, I only really discovered this place is this place when I was preparing for this 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 episode, a place called Sussus Flay, like you were speaking about, and there's a really very special species there. But, you know, a couple of things that I discovered about um, this location it's it's some of the world the highest dunes in the world are found here i can just imagine you know doing birding there at the end of the day you know those who drink cocktails sitting at the end of the day watching the sun go down and the the, the photographic opportunities that are at sister's flay are absolutely fantastic never mind the birding i think just the location is breath like it'll take your breath away it's absolutely amazing yeah it's it's outstanding it's obviously one of the main stops on any tourist's kind of itinerary, you know, if anyone goes to Namibia, they want to go there to see those dunes and at dead flay, the dead trees sort of against the red dunes. It's just uh, spectacular, as you say. So it can get quite busy. Um, I haven't been since just before COVID um, and it, it, especially in season, sort of August, September, it's, it can be quite busy. But you'll find most people, well, in fact, everybody else kind of, rushes to get to the dunes at the end of this 60-kilometer-long uh, road as quickly as possible, whereas we take our time and we, we bird along the road and, and just yeah take a leisurely approach to getting there. The dunes will be there uh, no matter what. Uh, but, yeah, absolutely stunning destination. It always stirs my soul, those kind of de- desert environments, especially as you watch it, you know, especially – as the day draws to an end and you see how the colors change in the light, etc., just absolutely magic. And a lot of uh, sort of the more hardcore birding itineraries don't go to Sources Flay because the dune lark you can see just outside Valfus Bay. So they cut out the whole of Sources Flay. But I think that's a, it's a bit of a waste because, uh, okay, for hard bird, hardcore birders may be thinking differently, but for anybody else, that scenery is, is worth it to learn. Yeah, and I think often uh, often with birding, birding is not just about the birds we see, it's about the experiences we have around birds and looking at the scenery that there is there. I mean, it's it, it's, it has to be on your itinerary when you visit Namibia. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, I've, I mean, uh, the only bird specifically we're going for there is June Lark, and there's a nice sort of generally easiest place to see it. Um, so it's only for one bird. And even in a full day there, if, if you come away with sort of 20 birds, it's probably a lot. So they, because of the harshness of the environment, there's not a lot of birds. Um, but it's just that harshness, which is actually the beauty. And to see like a, a oryx or chemspok 
you know, traipsing away through those dunes. It's just absolutely soul-stirring. It's an absolute must. I think if you go to Namibia and you don't go there, you, you've missed out on a lot. It's almost like coming to South Africa and not going to Kruger or something like that. And I can also imagine for people that go with their families, you know, a lot of birders might do the trip with their families. And, you know, it's not only, you know, you're going to get the dune lark, which is one of the probably the most sought after species in Namibia. But there's also must be other attractions. I've seen, you know, things of people doing dune surfing and that I'm sure that's probably one of the attractions that they do there. I'm not sure if they do it there. I'm just kind of imagining it might be one of the attractions there. Yeah, as far as I know, I think that dune surfing and stuff happens more along the coast. Um, but definitely, you you can climb some of the big dunes there on the on the way to the the dead flay. And every morning when you go out there, you'll see all the the tour vehicles stop at the base of these huge dunes, and you'll see a, a little trail of people going up the crest. It almost looks like ants because the dunes are so big. So it's definitely a popular activity is to climb up to to the top of one of these dunes. I've never done it, but uh, you can imagine what the views are like from up top there. It must be quite something. But you've got to be fit. You know, climbing a, a 300-meter high sand dune is is not easy at all. <laughs> but definitely for families, I mean, for children to see that kind of environment, it's it's really worthwhile. As always, the Birding Life is proud to be associated with Sarofsky Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lasser bird logging app, Spot, Plot, Play a Part, Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. One of the ways that you can help us to keep putting out the content that we are releasing is by supporting our online shop. We sell optics, books, Westerman's products, and a whole lot more. Check out the shop on our website, www.thebirdinglife.com. If you need any help with any of the products, please don't hesitate to email us on info at thebirdinglife.com. So now we're going to head to uh, two other places, which are, you know, as I've done my research around this year and seen the birding that these places offer. I mean, uh, Walfus Bay and Swatkopmunt, and just looking then, you know, I don't want to steal a bit of what you're going to say now, but the Walfus, Walfus Bay, the wetlands, I mean, I just was reading in summer, about 150,000 migrant bird species can be found there i mean that's not not species One hundred fifty thousand migrant birds can be found there that's like insane that's like an amazing number of birds oh i can imagine that number quite easily when you when you drive around there the, the bird numbers are phenomenal i mean flamingos you, you just see a whole sort of area just basically painted pink with with flamingos so the bird numbers are fantastic and of course it's it's a great place for the waiter watchers try to get your head around all the, the waders, which can be difficult, you know, for sort of higher grade birding stuff. And it often, uh, Valfus Bay is good at turning up some some of the more unusual stuff, you know, feralopes and uh, red shanks and all sorts of other things. So definitely worth a day at least. Uh, we normally stay in Swakopmund and head down for the day, but you can stay in Valfus Bay itself and just go around down, down the salt works and just spend your day sifting through waders and turns. So for, for birders, that's a that's a fun day out. <laughs> yeah, so what are some of the waders that are found there? Um, I was reading about the salt refinery at Swakopmund. What are some of the waders that are found in the area? Oh, you're looking for things like sandaling, uh, bar-tailed godwit, uh, curlew sandpipers in huge numbers, red knot, terek sandpiper, 
even common red shank, which for South Africans is, is a bit of a speciality. Uh, Broadbill sandpipe on occasion, um, your oyster catchers, uh, African oyster catcher in Eurasian on, on occasion as well. Uh, of course, chestnut bandit, it's a good place for chestnut banded plover, um, which is quite a special little bird. Um, and then a whole host of turn species as well. So, uh, yeah, as you know, some of these are not that easy to separate from each other in the field. Um, so having a, a spotting scope is really going to up your chances of actually identifying the birds that you can see. Yeah, just, that just was something I was thinking about. We spoke about that packing for a trip to N- Namibia. And I think one of the essential items to pack is uh, would be a, a spotting scope. I think it'll be a, uh, having a spotting scope, but I think will increase your chances of obviously seeing, seeing wader species. Another thing I just thought about, you know, with Namibia, it's waders and LBJs. So hiring a guide is probably a good idea when you do a trip to, to Namibia. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Guides are always going to up your, your hit rate significantly. You know, they, they know the birds, they know the areas to find the special birds. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of people like doing it on their own and it's fun to try and work out uh, what you're seeing. But uh, if, if you want to come away with as many birds as possible, uh, then the guides, guided tour is the obvious answer. It's the way to go. Uh, some people call separating LBJs fun. I think you'll just leave Namibia with more gray hairs because they are really difficult to identify at times. Yeah, well, definitely. But uh, that's where experience counts. And the more, the more you do it, the better you get at it, I guess. So the next destination we're going to speak about, uh, Mike Buckham um, did a trip up there and he said this is one of his favorite, favorite places to go to, the Oronga Wilderness. And looking at the habitat there, it's absolutely spectacular. So tell us about this special location. Uh, yeah, Irongo is, is fantastic. Uh, I've been there a number of times. Just as lockdown hit, the, the wonderful lodge we, we used to stay at closed down, but it's now kind of reinvented itself and is open again. It's called Irongo Wild now, and that's the perfect sort of base base to be in in the Irongo Mountains. Um, it's a broken hilly country with these big rocky outcrops and, and sparse vegetation, but it's like a lot of Namibia. It's absolutely visually stunning. The landscapes are beautiful. And it holds a couple of special birds there. Uh, two priorities there are hartlip spurfowl, which can be a tricky bird to, to find. Um, basically need to head out as, as, you know, kind of almost at first light or a little bit afterwards and, and just walk. You don't need, need to go in the car. You can just walk out from the camp on one of the trails and just thread your way through these, these rocky outcrops and listen for them. Often at first light and, and as the sun comes up, they'll perch up on the rocks and vocalize from on top of a rock. So that's what you want to be on the lookout and, and listening for is that call and then try and home in on them calling from the rocks. And then Damar, it's a good area for Damar, a rock runner, kind of strange little warbler-like bird that that literally runs along the, the rocks and has got a beautiful warbling call. Now, that one's a bit easier. You should you should always get it there. Um, but the hardlip spurfowl, not always so easy. And then uh, the place is packed with um, rosy-faced lovebirds. Um, they're common, but such a beautiful little bird. And in fact, at the restaurant, they have this probably one of the best bird feeding stations you'll come across anywhere in the, in the sub-region. So they put out a bit of seed every morning in front of the restaurant on this rock, and that pulls in a nice variety of birds and often huge numbers of these lovebirds. Um, so you can, you know, sometimes you don't even have to go out, go birding. You just get a cup of coffee and park at the, at the restaurant and wait for the birds to come in for the seed. And for photography, it's it's superb because often these lovebirds will start 
gathering even before they put the seed out. They kind of know the seed's coming and they start gathering. And that's when they're socializing and they're chittering and preening each other. Um, so you can just sit there with your big camera and comfort with your cup of coffee and just shoot away. So that's that's an experience in itself is never mind going out and walking around. Just the birding in the camp there is just fantastic. Yeah, bacon, eggs, birds, and coffee. It's like a really good combination. <laughs> Absolutely. I always say, let the birds come to you. It's, that's the way to do it. So yeah, the next destination we're going to chat about is one of the more well-known destinations, uh, not only for birders, but also for just people that would head up to Namibia, Itosha. So tell us about Itosha and the birding that is an off, on, on offer there. Yeah, of course, Itosha is kind of the, the equivalent of the Kruger National Park. And like you say, uh, every everybody visiting Namibia is definitely going to go to Itosha. Um, it's a, obviously it's a big park. There's a lot of ground to cover. I've never stayed in the in the westernmost camp. That's still on my bucket list. So most people will start in the centre, which is kind of Okakuyo area, and then either head, you know, east to Namatoni or vice versa, start in the east and, and make your way through to Okakuyo. So. Yeah, all, all nice camps. As I say, I said earlier, I haven't been since just before lockdown, so it'll be interesting to get back and just see what the upkeep and everything's like. Uh, but generally, they work pretty well. Um, I think like a lot of African national parks, uh, upkeep is not quite what it should be. Um, so I'm keeping my eye on that kind of thing. But, I mean, Itosha, the destination itself, sells itself, um, the wildlife, the birding, um, and, of course, Big thing about Etosha are the waterholes. And in Kruger, we have good waterholes, but you, you probably generally you, you, you get more out of it by driving around and looking for things. Whereas in Namibia, in, or in Etosha rather, uh, you can get great rewards just going and parking off at a waterhole for a couple of hours. Yeah, obviously I heard about Etosha Pan, which is uh, as far as really good for flamingos and that kind of thing. Yeah, in fact, I've, I've never been there when it's had water in. So that's also would be on my bucket list. So... I've only ever birded there or, or led tours there kind of spring and early summer. Um, and that would fill up probably late summer onwards. So, yeah, unfortunately, I, w- I will agree. I would, I would like to see that. I haven't seen it yet. And then obviously with the with Itosha being right near the north of Namibia, do you get any species that, you know, might, you know, creeping in any any vagrants coming into the into the park? Yeah, I guess there's always potential for that, especially around um, migration time, etc. And uh, <clears throat> I had it in uh, one November. We had uh, we were staying at uh, Lali Camp, and the thing about it, that was November when it was before the rain, so it was pretty dry. And it's so hot and dry that any little bit of water uh, would it, would attract anything in the area. So any bird flying through that's kind of lost or whatever is going to arrive at one of those waterholes. So we had quite a good run. We found a, a tree pipit the one morning. That was on the lawns in front of the restaurant. And then I think it was the next morning we, we got uh, Ortolan bunting at, at the waterhole. And that was at that time, and I think it hasn't been since in Southern Africa, that time it was the third record for Southern Africa. And then the following morning, they're leaving the park at one of the lodges just on the eastern boundary there, we got a corn crake in the gardens. So definitely, if, if things are lost and in the area, they're going to pitch up at one of those water holes. So always be on it. I mean, that that rule goes for no matter where you are, always be on the lookout for things that are out of place. Because as we've seen in the birding community with wood warblers and lesser white throats and all sorts of things pitching up, you just never know. They're, they're there. We just got to find them, basically. 
And then using Kruger as a reference, you know, when you go to Kruger and you stop at any of the, if there's a lion sighting or a leopard sighting, um, you stop there and, you know, you have this, this long line of cars and lots and lots and lots of people. Kruger is fantastic, but it's also because of its popularity, you know, it's, it, it does get quite busy. So how, how does Itosha compare in terms of the traffic on the roads and how many people visit the park? Is it very similar or is it a lot more a lot more open than 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 Kruger. Um, it's similar, but the numbers numbers will be lower. I mean, I don't think it gets anything like the visitors that Kruger gets. But definitely in season, you can kind of have the same problem, albeit on maybe a slightly smaller scale of of crowding around sightings. But with that open habitat, it's it's an advantage because often you know you don't have to be right next to whatever the sighting is. Let's say it's lion pride lying around or whatever you can see them from quite a distance because of the the open country so people can space out a bit more but definitely in season um you you, you can end up with the same problem just as i say maybe smaller scale yeah i just think that's something that you're saying is quite interesting is you know the the big difference possibly between kruger and and going up there from what i understand the tosha is just that you know kruger there's some places that are quite you know especially in the the rainy season you know to see animals is quite difficult because it gets quite uh, i don't want to say overgrown but you know uh, you know it gets it gets quite lush where tosha is obviously a lot more open so i think it's it, it provides for fantastic opportunities like you said for birding as well as for um looking for mammals and that kind of thing Oh, yeah, absolutely. That open habitat is great. I mean, you can stop anywhere and, and scan. And like you say, it's it's very open compared to, to Kruger. So a lot of the time your, your viewing is just that, you know, that much easier. It's not things aren't always down in the bushes and obscured by trees and shrubbery, etc. So, yeah, definitely a, a plus for Tosha on that side, although it can, you know, I'm not sure we want to get into a Kruger versus Itosha discussion because they they both have their virtues. Um, But in a way, Itosha can get a little bit monotonous because it's so kind of flat and and almost barren a lot of the time. Um, So you don't have, like in Kruger, I mean, the big trees are an attraction in their own right. We don't really get that in, in most of Itosha. But then you have, you know, they're just looking out over that, that massive pan, which is about, I think it's 4,600 square kilometers. I mean, that's just an awe-inspiring thing in its own right to see. So, yeah, I don't want to get into a comparison game. So <laughs> they're both good. Let's put it that way. So the last place we're going to talk about is Waterberg Plateau. So tell us about this destination. Yeah, Waterberg uh, makes for a quite a, a nice sort of end-off destination. Uh, you Leaving Itosha, you're kind of heading back towards Vintuk. So it's it's a it's a great way to break that journey. And again, carries some some special birds. You're going to be looking out for things like the Hartlob Spurfowl again, um, Bradfields and Montero's Hornbills, um, Violet, Violet Wood Hoopoo, uh, Rupal's Parrot, Carp's Tit, and again the the Demara Rock Runner, um, Bradfield Swift, um, Short-toed Rock Thrush. So quite a lot of nice birds on offer there. And then like most places in Namibia, another nice uh, scenic destination with that sort of uh, red sandstone cliff in the background. So, yeah, a lovely destination, definitely worth two nights. And then it puts you within easy-ish reach of, of Vintuk or whatever for the end of the trip. So just on a last thing on a practical basis, you know, somebody who says, okay, cool, I'd like to do a trip to Namibia, how long should they – 
plan to spend there to maximize their, their time birding? And then number two, what is the best time of the year to visit? I would say time time length or length of stay, I would say minimum two weeks. You know, it's a big country and, and the distances are, are quite significant. So, for example, that, that route we've kind of discussed, I mean, it doesn't go all the way to southern Namibia and it doesn't go to far northern Namibia. So it's not even the whole country by a long shot. And that we do over two weeks, basically. So if you want to include extras on top of that, then you're looking at probably a minimum three weeks. They have a, a sort of highway that goes up the middle of the country, a tar highway, and then branching off from there, a few sort of tar roads. But a lot of Namibia is driving on dirt roads, so your average speed is quite low. And that, I mean, if you're talking about tips, uh, that's especially for self-drivers and people who aren't used to dirt roads, you've got to take it really easy on those roads. Uh, one of the sad facts of Namibia is has from what I understand, quite a high proportion of of single vehicle accidents on these dirt roads because they get corrugated. And, you know, if you're sending it along, maybe you've got 200 Ks or more to do in a day, so you're pushing your speed a bit. And it's it's quite easy to lose control of vehicles on those corrugations. So always take it slow. You know, I'd, I'd stick to maybe 80. If the, road's, if the road's better, maybe edge a bit, bit over that. But keep your speed low and rather just take your time. The last thing you want... Is, is some kind of accident out in the desert there. Uh, time of year, as far as I can see, August, September are the most popular tourism times. So that's general tourists, not talking about birding. Uh, but September is a great birding month. It's kind of before the heat really kicks in. So you, your days are longer. Like I said earlier, you know, in, in summer by, by 10 o'clock, the act- activity really dies off. Um, so September is, is a fine month because birds are also obviously uh, sort of looking forward to the summer about to kick in. So they're starting to get active, thinking about breeding. So September is great. I've, I've done it all the way through to November. Um, from November, if you get a bit of rain, you can see in the game viewing side of things, it changes dramatically. In Itosha, you get a bit of rain and suddenly you, you have to struggle to find an elephant even. <laughs> but birding terms, that there's nothing wrong with full summer either. But like most of Southern Africa, that's when birds are breeding and active. So Birding season, I'd probably say your prime is from about September till about March, which is the case for most of Southern Africa. Oh, thanks, Leon. I really appreciate your time. I know that after this episode, a lot of people are going to look to trips up to Namibia, but we really appreciate your time. And yeah, I can't wait to visit this fantastic country. I can honestly tell you it's one of my dream destinations. So yeah, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. It's only a pleasure, Adam. If I can just mention... didn't get there on the Valfus Bay. There's there's a couple of cool activities you can do there. You can do one of the boat cruises into the harbour, which uh, which gets you up very up up close to pelicans and, and gulls and things. Even go out around the sort of what I think it's called sandwich. Uh, sorry, uh, I can't remember the name of the point now. Pelican Point. There we go. And you can go out into the open ocean and even see a couple of pelagic birds. Um, so that's cool, a fun activity. It's not necessarily a, a dedicated birding trip, but uh, they actually take you out to see the, the oyster farming and things like that, and you get up close to the seals. So that's a lot of fun. And then another one is um, when you're staying at Swakopmund, you go into the desert on what they call a living desert tour with, with local guides who, who show you the ecology and some of the fascinating creatures that live in what is essentially it's a sand sea. It's basically just sand, sand dunes. But there's actually cool little creatures, lizards and things like that living in there that they tell you all about. So that, that's worth it as well. 
But yeah, it's a pleasure to speak to you and uh, definitely put Namibia on uh, the top of your list. But it's, it's such a fantastic destination. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this week's show. We really appreciate your support. If you have any comments or feedback on any of the episodes, feel free to drop us an email on info at theburninglife.com or send us a message on any of our social media platforms. We would love to get to know you better. So until next time, be blessed and happy burning.